It's uh, turn the gymnasium voice down now. Um, it's great to be here on this fabulous day. I want to start in prayer. We have so much to pray for and be thankful for. Let's pray. I, and before we begin, I'm going to lead the prayer off um, around the wildfire situation in our province. And we need to be cognizant of the tens of thousands of people that are uh, out of their homes and are struggling so much. I just can't, I can't imagine that. So let's, let's take this to God in prayer. Father, as we uh, come here today in our comfortable situation in this beautiful town with sprinklers and lakes and mountains, Lord, we realize that there are those in this province who are really struggling. Those that are hundreds and hundreds of miles from home in evacuation centers. And we're not talking about a few people, God. We're talking about thousands of people. We think of all the people that are on the line that are fighting to uh, put fires out to save structures, in some cases to save lives. And Lord, we lift that situation up to you um, at this time. May you be there in a powerful way, Lord, uh, with those that are affected by these wildfires in this province. And Father, we pray for... we. We, we pray for rain. That's what it's going to take. It's going to take your hand on this province, not the hand of man. Father, we also pray for our gathering here today. Uh, we've seen some amazing leadership here this morning, Lord, and we thank you for it. We pray for our pastoral leadership. We pray for Blair as he transitions into a different phase of his life. We pray for Pastor Jeff as he uh, goes through uh, a summer of time off of rest and rejuvenation for family and for his mission. We pray for Rick Penner as he transitions into being a youth minister. And Lord, we're so thankful that we have people like Justin who are stepping forward in in pastoral leadership in our church. Lord, he's such a a missional young man. We thank you for his leadership. And the leadership of the church as a whole. Father, those that step forward and serve so faithfully, Lord, I pray that you build them. Uh, You build them in a powerful way. And finally, Lord, we pray for the word today. I I pray that you speak through me, not what I want to say, Lord, but what you want to come from my lips. I pray that the congregation hears with open hearts and minds and that today's sermon uh, is meaningful to them and builds them. Amen. So we're continuing with the insurrection series um, in the book of Mark. Um, And... uh, Today we're going we're gonna to carry on with that, but I, I just want to take a moment and talk a little bit about, about this book. Um, the book of Mark was probably written around 66 to 70 AD, which is really interesting because one of the things we're going to talk about today is the temple, and the temple was torn down by the Romans in 70 AD. So, I, history teacher, I find that kind of thing interesting. Um, it's also thought that Mark was written... Um, First, it was the first of the Gospels to be written and serves as a primary source for both Matthew and Luke. And it was written for a a Roman audience. Um, And in Mark, Jesus is portrayed as a heroic man of action given to powerful emotions, including agony. Let's dive into Mark and study a bit more about this Jesus, this heroic man of action given to powerful emotions, including agony. Click. Click, click, <laughs> click. All right. Um, last week, Max and Colleen introduced us uh, to Mark 11, which is the story about Jesus' triumphal entry uh, 
into Jerusalem riding on a colt <clears throat> amidst the, thro- the worshiping throngs of people. It was a key fulfillment of prophecy um, concerning the Messiah. The scriptures we're going to study today are chapters 12 to 26 and follow up on this introduction. And we're working to get those up on the screen. Here we go. There we go. Uh, let's pick up the story in Mark 11, verses 12 to 26. This is from the New Living Translation. The next morning, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. He noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off, so he went over to see if he could find any figs. But there were only leaves on it, because it was too early in the season for fruit. And Jesus said to the tree, May no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. When they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people, buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, The scriptures declare, My temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. When the leading priests and teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began plying on how to kill him. They were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teachings. That evening, Jesus and the disciples left the city. The next morning, as they passed the fig tree he had cursed, the disciples noticed that it had withered from the roots up. And Peter reminded, uh, Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree the previous day, and he exclaimed, Look, Rabbi, the tree you have cursed has withered and died. Jesus turned to the disciples, Have faith in God. I tell you the truth. You can say this to the mountain. May you be lifted up and thrown into the sea. And it will happen. But you must really believe it will happen and have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything. And if you believe that you've received it, it will be yours. But, love these buts, exclamation point. But when you are praying, first forgive anyone that you are holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. Mark has given us this story, this bit of scripture, uh, in what I would call a sandwich form. The outer part of the sandwich brackets the actions around the temple um, are the story of the fig tree. The inner part, which is kind of the meat of the sandwich, concerns the temple. Each part of this sandwich helps us understand all the rest of it. But for the sake of perspective this morning, I want to pose for just a moment and take a look at this scripture in the timeline of the mission of Jesus. As we look at it, we have to remember, these are Jesus' final days. He's four days away from his mission on Golgotha. He's four days away from crucifixion. This is the, count, this is the countdown to an event which is going to be both incredibly difficult for Jesus, for Jesus the man, but so important for all of mankind. The action we're going to talk about this morning, immediately, the first thing we're going to talk about is the cursing of the fig tree. Jesus and his disciples have left Bethany, which is about two miles from Jerusalem, and they're on their way back to the temple. And we're told something that we haven't read very often in Scripture. In fact, we've only heard about it one other time. Jesus is hungry. He's hungry. The only other time in Scripture we learn about Jesus being hungry is in the Matthew 4 in the temptation um, passage. And, and all, the, all of the uh, commentaries agree that this is included 
to relate to us, to show us how human Jesus was. He wasn't just this ephemeral, he, he felt, he, he felt fear, he felt trepidation, and he also felt hunger. It reminds us that Jesus was human through all that he's going through. He's hungry and in the distance he sees a fig tree with leaves on it. So he approaches the tree to see if there's anything on it. Understand, fig trees do have seasons, but in the Holy Land, in, in, in the tropics where fig trees grow, trees can give fruit, they can bear fruit all the time. So it's not uncommon to find a, tree, a fig tree with fruit, even though it may be out of season. Jesus comes to the fig tree, he sees that there's no fruit on it, and he says, may no one ever eat this fruit from you again. And the disciples heard him. The question is, why did this happen? Why are we told this story? Why did Jesus curse this tree? As one commentary puts it, the story doesn't seem worthy of Jesus. It seems to have a very human petulance in it. I like that word, petulance. Interestingly, this is the only time in Scripture that Jesus actually curses something. He gives lots of warnings. He gives lots of warnings about curses, but he doesn't any other time in Scripture actually lay a curse on something or somebody. How do we understand this text? Did Jesus simply fly off the handle because he was hungry? Did he misuse his powers by cursing the tree out of anger and frustration? I think not. I believe that Mark intentionally designed this account as it stands for the purpose of intensifying and clarifying Jesus' identity and authority and declaring a fate that awaits Jerusalem. To grasp this, let's examine the symbolic significance of the fig tree in the eyes of a first century Jew. Throughout the Old Testament, there have been varying images used to symbolize the nation of Israel. Commonly in Scripture, it's compared to a living thing, a vine, an olive tree, or a fig tree. In both Isaiah 5 and Ezekiel 15, Israel is represented as a vine. It's portrayed as an olive tree in Judges 9 and Romans 11. It's not hard to grasp or understand or make the connection for a first century Jew, the fig tree was very symbolic and seen as a symbolic uh, symbol of the nation of Israel. In 1 Kings 4.25, it says, And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and his fig tree. Here the vine and the fig tree represent the blessings of God, blessings arising from being in a covenantal relationship with him. Symbolism to the first century Jew is crystal clear. Judah and Israel had a covenantal blessing from God. They enjoyed his protection. They were his chosen people. Jesus doesn't curse the fig tree because he's mad that there's nothing to eat. He doesn't curse it out of human petulance. The fig tree represents Israel, which is not bearing fruit. The nation of Israel is cursed because they have squandered God's blessings. No wonder the priests and the Pharisees were afraid of Jesus of Nazareth and his message. Jesus is condemning Israel by cursing this tree, a visible sign to his disciples, and just as importantly, a sign for us 2,000 years later to take to heart. The key point to consider here is this. Jesus demands fruitfulness from his disciples. Israel claimed to be the people of God, and yet they were not bearing fruit worthy of discipleship. Jesus condemns them for this hypocrisy. He makes it very clear in John 15, verse 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. 
as I delved deeply into this text, I felt my own life under scrutiny. That happens when you start to dive into, into Scripture. It's amazing. Do it, please. Is my life fruitful? Am I fruitful in all seasons? What an amazing challenge. Is your life fruitful? Let's move to the meat of the sandwich here, the temple cleansing. Now, this is where I promised my wife I wouldn't go all social studies teacher here. Um, so she's going to come up and kick me if I get off track. Um, very quickly, I just want to raise a few points here about the temple that Jesus enters. The temple is built on the Temple Mount, the highest point in the city of Jerusalem. And it involves the total square area of the temple is about 35 hectares. So it's, it's, a, big, it's a big area. It's, it's big in size. And the temple is made of various courts. And we can see here, you probably can't read it, but this is the Gentiles' court, the Gentiles courtyard. These areas here are where all of the, the Gentiles could come and worship. Remember, during Passover in Jerusalem, there would be as many, some commentaries say, as three or 400,000 people in Jerusalem. So this place was packed. It was packed full of people. Um, inside the Holy of Holies, which is the, the actual temple itself, um, only Jews, only born Jews were allowed in there. And this area here is the women's courtyard. And, and I don't want to dwell on it, but that would be about the size of one and a half football fields. So it gives you a little perspective. One and a half football fields, that area right there. And now I'm going to go off track here, and this is a social studies teacher in me. The historians figure that Jesus actually uh, worked in Solomon's portico, and this is where he actually came and turned over the tables and, and kicked out all the bunny changers and, and animal sacrifices. took place right, right in this area here. And the last point that I want to point out here is this. This little thing on the side is called the Antonia Fortress. It's named after Mark Anthony, and it was where the Russian, sol uh, Russian soldiers... Oof. There's a Freudian slip. It's where the Roman soldiers were barracked. Okay? So they, they built this fortress on the side of the temple. I'll realize what this must have meant for the Jews in Israel. Here they build their fortress on the Temple Mount, overlooking the whole town. It's the biggest thing that you look to when you look up and there's, there's the temple of God. But guess what? Tacked onto it, and even taller than the temple of God, is the Roman fortress. Hold on to that thought as we move on. Jesus and his followers have come into Jerusalem and Jesus goes into the temple complex. He goes into this area here and he overthrows the tables. Of those who are buying and selling sacrificial animals <clears throat> and those who are changing money. Jesus' anger is calculated and with purpose. Remember that in John 2, Jesus had already cleansed the temple once. We see that those reforms didn't last any longer than when Jesus left the city. So what's the problem with this temple? What's the problem here? Why does Jesus have to do this again? There's a number of reasons, and let's look at them. Firstly, the temple was a place of worship that had been turned into a place of usury and commerce, a den of thieves with a circus atmosphere. A couple of different types of transitions were taking place. The first was the exchange of various national currencies for the temple coins to pay the temple tax. Every Jewish male had to pay a half shekel tax every year. 
and they would pay it if they could when they came to the temple. So they're paying a tax. Everybody that walked into the tax is paying a temple. Probably around 5 or $6 in our money, but a significant amount of money in those days. The Jewish leaders would not accept money from the nations, because these people came from all over the world, um, because, they claimed, foreign money had things like Caesar on it. And that's an idolatrous thing. They're worshipping Caesar. So you've got to change your money to Jewish shekels in order to pay the temple tax. And guess what? The money changers would change the money, of course, for a fee. And the problem was that oftentimes that fee was incredibly excessive. The second transaction was the purchase of animals for sacrifice. Worshippers didn't have to buy animals. They, were, they could bring them with them. But it was really difficult for these pilgrims to bring animals into the temple, especially if they'd been traveling a long distance. And the law also stated that the animals had to be without blemish. They had to be perfect. So the priest could say, oh, no, I'm sorry, that dove has got a gimpy toe. You've got to buy a pair of doves over there. I don't know what it would be. And so they would, they would sell animals um, that were okay to be sacrificed, that were, that were without blemish. One writer records that a pair of doves would cost as much as 50 times more inside the temple than outside the temple. All of these transactions were being carried out in the Gentiles' courtyards. Thousands of people that came to Jerusalem, the courtyard became a circus, which Jesus was going to cleanse. In verse 17, he said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Indeed, pious Jews could get into the inside of the temple and pray in a beautiful, prayerful setting, But for all the people of the nations that were coming, for the thousands and thousands of visitors, they couldn't pray in the courtyards because they were a circus. And this is what Jesus was doing. It became more of a circus than a house of prayer. There's more. The other reason of the temple cleansing was the fulfillment of prophecy. In Malachi 3, verses 1 to 4, Malachi describes the the messenger who will prepare the way for the coming of the Lord through the purification of the temple and his people. If Jesus was the Messiah, as was so widely rumored, he would cleanse the temple. Jewish leaders believed that the purification would not be against the Jews, but against the heathen nations who had encroached the temple area, like those Romans who had built the fort on the side of the temple. This action was what the throngs expected when when, when Jesus came into Jerusalem. When he came in and they sang Hosanna and laid down the leaves and and celebrated his, his arrival the day before, they expected Jesus to be the one who was going to come in and give those Romans their comeuppance. He was going to come in and drive them out of the temple. He was going to establish the lordship of the Jewish nation. He was the king that was going to deliver them. That parade, I think it was like the first Super Bowl parade. Um, Jesus was a triumphant king who was going to give those Romans payback. Cause for celebration. But... There's that big butt again. Jesus does not cleanse the heathen nations from the temples. He cleans, cleanses the heathen Jews, the den of thieves, the circus masters. Like the fig tree, you see, the temple was not bearing fruit that was pleasing to God. And the chief priests and Pharisees trembled. They got the message. And we go back to the fig tree again, the other layer of this sandwich story. It's now the next day. And Jesus and his followers are passing on the road again 
from Bethany on their way to Jerusalem. As they were walking along, the disciples see the fig tree that Jesus had cursed, now withered and dying. Peter remembers what Jesus has said and says, Look, that fig tree you cursed is withered. Jesus seizes Peter's amazement as an opportunity to teach his disciples again about being a true follower of God. Jesus uses this moment to teach us some practical lessons. Let's pause and put it in perspective. These are Jesus' final days. He's on his way to Jerusalem and his day of reckoning. This is an important message. In some ways, it's almost Jesus' last word. We need to pay attention. He said to his disciples, Have faith in God. I tell you the truth. You can say this to the mountain. May you be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it'll happen. But you must really believe it will happen and you have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything and if you believe that you've received it, it will be yours. But when you are praying, first forgive anyone that you are holding your grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. Jesus tells us that faith will move mountains. How often have you or I run into mountains in our lives we simply can't overcome? I I, I can't speak for you, but there's been numerous times in my life Uh, where I've given my mountains to God, and I've witnessed great difficulties overcome. And I've looked at the saints, the human beings, who not through their own personal efforts, but in so many circumstances, demonstrate a faith in God that enables people to overcome the mountains of their faith, rich in confidence and authority. And and, and I think of writers like Corrie Ten Boom and her story about, you know, the horrors and, and how her faith just saw her through that. This passage also says not just to pray for mountains, um, and I'm going to borrow Eugene Peterson's passage from the message. Eugene Peterson says, you don't just pray for the mountains. I urge you to pray for absolutely everything as you embrace this God life. So it's not just the big things, but pray for everything. Pray for everything. Jesus isn't finished here. He gives us a final big but. But, he insists. We cannot or should not pray while bearing any kind of a grudge. He's not ambiguous here at all. Faith in God alone is not enough. He clearly ties the need to faith for faith with the warning that we must also have forgiveness for others. We can't expect to have answered prayers if we have an unforgiving heart. Even worse, we have to wonder whether our own sins will be forgiven if we're unwilling to forgive others. A few weeks ago, Pastor Jeff commented, that power is not in the name of Jesus, power is in the walk of Jesus. Forgiveness should be central to our faith walk. Forgiveness should be our way. So what is the lesson here today? What is the takeaway? Firstly, I believe that this scripture tells us, in fact, warns us, that we need to be fruitful in our daily lives. We are a blessed people. Believe it. Are we using that blessing in a fruitful way? Jesus' actions both in the temple and towards the fig tree in response to the state of Israel, which despite its blessings and promises was not bearing fruit, are pretty clear. And we're given clarity by Jesus about what a fruitful life should look like. Faithful and expectant prayer and a humble walk. One which by its nature will bear fruit. One that needs to be centered around forgiveness. This is fabulous news. This is... This is the best news that you can ever get. Now, I'm an old teacher. I am old, and I'm a teacher. And i got to tell you that if I was to tell you there's the one test of your life 
the most important test you will ever face. And it counts, man. It counts for everything. But guess what? I'm going to do two things. I'm going to tell you what the questions are, and I'm going to tell you what the answers are. And that's exactly what Jesus has done in this scripture for us. He's told us what the test questions are, and he's told us what the answers are. You want to get into heaven? You want to enjoy the blessings of our mighty God? Be fruitful. Be faithful. Walk in a way that is pleasing to Jesus. Again, we heard Pastor Jeff preach, the power of Jesus is not in the name of Jesus, but in the way of Jesus. Let me be really personal here. As you walk in faith, do you walk in a fruitful way, the way of Jesus? I pray for myself that this scripture, this passage I've been blessed to spend time in, will inform and influence my walk in a way that's pleasing to Jesus. And I pray the same for each and every one here today. May each and every one of you lead a life that is fruitful and pleasing, a life that in balance brings a smile to God. Thank you. Let's pray. O gracious and great Father and King, we, before you hum- we come before you humbled and awed at what you have done for each one of us. We look at this story of Jesus' final days and his journey to the cross with amazement and wonder. Through scripture, we see the torment and fear of Jesus the man, but also in the same scripture, we see the promises and love that you, our God, has for each one here today. I lift this congregation up to you at this time and pray that as we go through the days ahead, the lessons of faith that Jesus taught us in this story become part of each one of our walks. I thank you for the faith of missionaries from our own church like Max and Colleen, and for those working close to missionaries like John and Stacy. Their faith walk is a demonstrable fruit that all of us witness and take strength in. I pray that in a similar way we can all be faithful and fruitful in our daily walks, at school, with friends, peers, coaching soccer, wherever you place us. God, you've engineered our life circumstances and placed us here for a reason. I pray that we're fruitful and faithful and confident in prayer so that we may be, in our own ways, just as missional as those we send out in mission. In Jesus' name, I thank you for your amazing love. Amen.